Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday episode of the Overbowl GM Podcast. My name is Nick Zeraris. Exciting games in the hockey universe last night. Julius Randle uh, exploded. The Nets uh, put a hurtin' on the Kings. They're really interesting sports night on Monday night. The sports gods treated us. I know there's a significant part of the country that's uh, getting buried with snow. I know in Texas in particular, it's like biblically cold down there that the infrastructure cannot uh, meet the demand of the general public that's trying to heat their homes right now. So not great. I mean, the Stars, the Dallas Stars had to have their game postponed because uh, the mayor of Dallas requested them to not play their game so the electric grid could conserve some energy. Monday night had a couple really entertaining games. The uh, Toronto Maple Leafs blew a 5-1 to lead to the Ottawa Senators. Yes, the worst team in the league, Ottawa Senators, came back from a 5-1 deficit and won. Then you go on over to the Winnipeg Jets and the Edmonton Oilers. They put on a real barn burner. At one point, it was 5-1 to Winnipeg. The Oilers got it to 5-5, and then the Jets ended up prevailing 6-5. to Really, really exciting hockey game. Uh, someone like me who has Ryan Nugent Hawkins on their fantasy team was very happy. Should have scored one more there at the end. McDavid fired a slap pass from the point, but it just missed Nugent Hopkins' stick. As I'm recording late on Monday night, the lone hockey game still on that I'm watching. I know there is a Sharks game on, but I don't have that on. The other game I have on on my left is the Canucks and the Calgary Flames, who have played some very exciting hockey games over the last several days. Said it on yesterday's episode, but the North Division is awesome. I know this is only going to be a one-year thing because of the pandemic, because the Canadian government doesn't want teams flying back and forth between the United States, and it will probably go away come next season, but every single night there is a compelling hockey game. Like I said, even games involving the Senators are entertaining because, you know, someone's going to lose to the Senators. The Senators have four wins thus far this year. Two of them are against Toronto, one is against Montreal, and one is against Edmonton, but Hey, those are some four good wins to hang your hat on. I know I know Ottawa isn't actively trying to win hockey games right now. Their real interest is trying to bottom out as much as humanly possible and continuing to uh, accumulate those ping-pong balls to cure more talent and eventually have a good team in a few years down the road. But kudos to them for uh, not just throwing in the towel, for grinding away, for playing a style of hockey that would force Toronto back on their heels and Toronto when they're on their heels does panic they do become a little bit of a deer in the headlights situation and that's a franchise thing that's not unique to the guys who are on the team right now I mean when we talked about the Boston Bruins on the Bruins episode a couple weeks ago with Sarah she brought up the game the game seven in 2013 in the lockout season where the Leafs were up four to one with nine and a half minutes left and the Bruins came back to win that game in overtime Shit like that lingers. That is part of your organization's psyche, even though there's no one still on the Leafs this day that was on the team back then. There isn't. Now that I've talked a little bit, uh, just a little bit of a set the scene for Monday night, today's episode was originally going to be a baseball episode, but the guest I had lined up suffered a loss in the family, so I obviously am going to be doing this episode by myself, but Thinking about you, Chris, 
sorry for your loss, man. I'll see you guys in a sec, and we're going to talk a little bit about the Mets and their offseason. And with that, we're just going to jump right on into it, talking about the Mets and their offseason. So, I know that as this offseason has progressed... A large collective of Mets fans has gotten a little antsy. They thought we were going to be in on George Springer. Of course, Springer signed with the Blue Jays. We were in on Trevor Bauer. Bauer ultimately opted to sign with the Dodgers. There was a little bit of a murmuring that they might be in on JT Riomuto, but instead of waiting to see what Riomuto and the Phillies ended up doing, they jumped in on former White Sox catcher James McCann to fill in that hole. And... They've slowly but surely been picking up depth guys. They they signed Almora last week. They signed Pilar on Monday night. They are trying to round out the bottom half of the roster because they still have holes. We talked about this one of the first episodes of this show way, way back in the early part of the fall where I was here with Chris, with Boney, with Sean talking about what we wanted the Mets to get. We said they needed to add a pitcher. They traded for Carlos Carrasco. I am content in the starting rotation. I would like one more back of the rotation arm, but I'll talk about that in a minute. We said they needed to upgrade catcher from Wilson Ramos, and they did. James McCann, is, he's a little older, but he's a plus defensive catcher and not a total liability at the plate. He is not a Tomas Nito-esque level catcher who gives you absolutely nothing with his bat. But he's not JT Romuto. And we said they needed some something in their outfield to shore things up. Because Brandon Nimmo is fine as a corner outfielder because he gets on base, so you swallow his defensive weaknesses. But... Going into the season, if you're going to have to play an outfield of Dom Smith, Brandon Nimmo, and Michael Conforto every game to start, and then you're going to have to bring in Almora or Pilar as a defensive substitute later in the game and change your alignment, or there'll be days where you got to play J.D. Davis and left, your outfield is going to be a defensive liability no matter what. Pretty much, unless the Mets got Springer, it doesn't seem like they're going to end up with Jackie Bradley Jr. I know for a couple of weeks that was the hot rumor that the New York baseball writers were talking about, that the Mets and Bradley Jr. had been talking, but that Bradley Jr. wanted a four- or five-year deal worth a significant amount of money, and the Mets were not prepared to make that offer, and it's why Jackie Bradley Jr. is still a free agent as of Monday night when I'm recording this. He wants more than he's worth. The Mets told him thanks, but no thanks. They figure they'll roll the dice with Nemo and go from there. I understand why people are a bit antsy, a little bit disappointed that they lost out on Bauer. I, I went back and forth on if I wanted the Mets to go after Bauer. They were ultimately in on him. They It was came down to them and the Dodgers for his services, and... He ended up in L.A., and I think ultimately that's probably a good thing just because I don't think I don't think Bauer's personality would have jived particularly well with how Met fans are, especially on Twitter, because Bauer likes to be on Twitter, and uh, so do Met fans. So his 
cool guy act would have worn very thin if he had an ERA over four and was getting paid $39.5 million. You know, like seven to $10 million more than Jacob deGrom, the better pitcher on the same team. So I'm, I'm glad the Mets avoided that he- that potential headache of Bauer self-imploding and then causing additional issues by being just aggressive on Twitter, on harassing people on Twitter. That's enough about Trevor Bauer, but big picture. I understand the frustration. I know we wanted another blue chip guy, whether you're talking about Springer, Bauer, Rio Muto. I would have liked one of those guys as well. I do think if you gave the Mets hindsight, knowing that what Rio Muto was ultimately going to sign for with the Phillies, if you if you knew that was the offer, I think the Mets probably would have done that at done that. But they, I won't say they rushed in to sign uh McCann, Jared McCann, but they definitely signed him a little early in the market when it was still trying to take shape what guys were going to be getting. I think in some universe, there's a world in which the Mets throw on an additional two or three million to each year of Riumoto's deal, and he signs here. The Mets don't get McCann. McCann probably ends up in Philadelphia as a compromise for the Phillies needing to get something at the catcher position, but it it didn't work out that way. I know I've read from more than one place, more than one publication, that Real Muto never really had much interest in leaving Philadelphia, that Bryce Harper was feverishly pounding the drum with the front office and ownership that we need Real Muto on this team. He is an important part of this team, and we need him here. And if you didn't re-sign him, you were effectively wasting several years of Harper's prime because you're paying Harper like he's one of the five best players in baseball. But if you got nothing around him, you know, not you're not maximizing your value. You got to give him guys in the lineup to give him protection. You get a good defensive catcher. It makes his life easier as an outfielder. All of these things, they're all interconnected. So let's take a big step back and look at the Mets' big picture, where they were the last day of the regular season of the 60-game season where they missed the playoffs with the expanded playoff field, and where they are right now. The single most important thing this offseason was facilitating Steve Cohen's purchase of the Mets. I don't care. Obviously... Obviously, adding guys and making the team better is important, both for short and long-term results, but the Mets are no longer a joke. That was the most important thing to be facilitated this offseason. More than any roster move, any free agent, any trade, any guy developing, we have Steve Cohen as the owner of the Mets, and he will not tolerate the stupidity, the cheapness, the penny-smart, dollar-stupid roster moves, the signing over-the-hill guys to be able to sell tickets in June on random weekends. There's no Adrian Gonzalez right now. There's no Robinson Cano. There's no over-the-hill guy the Mets are trying to sell you a false bill of goods on. The Mets are working towards a multi-year window of contention. 
Think about Steve Cohen's introductory press conference where he said he would like to win a World Series within three to five years. The Wilpons would say that to your face and then go and trade Jared Kalenic, who's a top five prospect in all of baseball for Robinson Cano and a closer with one year of elite performance. I don't want to make this a whole big vindication of, well, we all said that as soon as the Wilpons are gone, the Mets would turn it around. We got to see the team play games. I think the Mets will be better than they were last year. They had a really good lineup and a very bad rotation. I think those things will probably swing to the opposite ends of the pendulum. I think the pitching will be better this year. And I think the lineup is going to regress just a little bit. I don't think it's going to be abysmal, but assuming the season starts close to on time and you're talking about a 162-game season, the lineup the Mets are going to field every day is pretty damn good. And that all starts with Steve Cohen as your owner and Yes, I. All right, I'll I'll talk about it now. Yes, the Jared Porter situation was bad. The Mets were wrong. They fired him expeditiously. That was the right thing to do. But the Mets need to work on their hiring practices because they had the Jared Porter story, and then within a couple of weeks they had the Mickey Calloway story too. And both of those happened. And the organization is responsible for their employees and what they do. Yes, what Jared Porter did, he was not an employee of the Mets when it, he was harassing that woman, but the Mets gave their stamp of approval, making him their general manager. So they bear the responsibility for his actions before he was general manager. Then you talk about the Mickey Calloway thing. I just, if it was that widely known around the league, amongst people in the media, that this guy had a habit of harassing women who were covering the teams he was working for. That That's just unacceptable that the Mets weren't able to peel back this open secret. When you talk about open secrets, when you talk about things like that, and on a more serious level, you talk about like the Harvey Weinstein stuff, like the Catch and Kill, the Ronan Farrow book. If these are such open secrets, someone someone's got to call bullshit at some point and call out a team for hiring someone who's done such scummy things in the past and made people feel uncomfortable in the workplace. That's just unacceptable. And going forward, I hope the Mets are more conscientious of those decisions and who they hire and the backgrounds of people they hire because those reflect poorly on the team. And it comes at a time where the Mets are trying to clean up their image to no longer be a laughingstock. The Mets under the Wilpons were a circus, a certifiable three-ring circus. Whether you talk about Mickey Calloway challenging reporters to fistfights, you talk about the miscellaneous fires at City Field, you talk about Mr. Met flipping off a fan, you talk about the dildo in Kevin Ploiecki's locker, you talk about Matt Harvey getting his UTI because he was holding in his pee too long. You talk about Matt Harvey going AWOL during the World Series. You talk about Cespedes breaking both his feet on his ranch. All of these things, these embarrassing moments come from the top. And now it's on Steve Cohen to make sure the culture changes wholesale. That the people in charge in the front office, then people in the dugout, whether you're talking about the managers, the pitching coach, the bench coach, the video staff, the development staff, the physical trainers, all of those people need to have an air of legitimacy and professionalism that has been sorely lacking 
from the mess as an organization for much of the last 15 years. Basically since uh, 2006, 2007, ever since that last run, basically before, right before the Bernie Madoff scandal blew up and the Wilpons were uh, outed on their money problems. All of this is interconnected. Now you have an owner who's going to hold people accountable, not just enforce a culture of self-preservation where people constantly throw each other under the bus to keep their job, even if they aren't deserving of it. You see it all the time. Brody threw Mickey Calloway under the bus. Yeah, Mickey Calloway is a bad person and a serial harasser, but he... Brody threw him under the bus to save his own ass because that was the culture the Wilpons had fostered where as long as you can put the blame on someone else, you can get away with it. And that's what Brody Van Wagenen did. He made some abysmal trades. He gutted the farm system for depth roster players, whether you want to talk about Jake Marisnik, Keon Broxton. Those kind of trades are unnecessary. Guys like Marisnik, guys like Keon Broxton are available on waivers at the end of spring training every single year. You do not need to go trading depth prospects for that. And it stings, because now you're in a place where the Mets farm system is in the low teens, the high teens or low 20s. And the Mets didn't were not in a position to be trading prospects the last several years, because they, they should have made a concerted effort at some point between the 2015 World Series and the 2019 season where they came close to making the playoffs but ultimately ended up missing them, to rebuild, to accumulate some extra prospects, to work their way back up, and to give the younger players in their system time to develop. The half measures of bringing in over-the-hill guys to sell tickets did nothing but hurt the organization. Trading prospects when you are not ready to compete is dumb, especially especially in baseball, where you have such a long season. Yeah, a guy like Robbie Cano is fine for a 20-game stint every other month, but, you know, he's got to play 140 games to have any value, and if he's hitting 230 in those 140 games, he's not useful. Now, now that we've established that Steve Cohen was the most important thing to happen this offseason, Let's start talking a little bit about the roster, the lineup, that kind of thing. So, first of all, I know it was a while ago, but people seem to be forgetting that the Mets traded for Francisco Lindor, who's a top 10 to 15 player in all of baseball. They got Cookie Carrasco, Carlos Carrasco, in that same deal, and Carrasco is going to be a really good number three starter in this rotation. And then... Assuming Syndergaard comes back on time, you're talking about a good, as good a one through four as any team in the league, aside from maybe just the Dodgers and maybe the Padres. Those are really the only two teams with in their uh, rotation. And you talk about the problems the Mets have had the last few years. One of the main issues they've had is that they haven't had anyone in AAA to call out for an emergency spot start. It's been guys like Wilmer Font. Tyler Pill, Walker Lockett, guys who are just not major league pitchers and are just punting every fifth day. In theory, the Mets have a solid rotation. Then you get Syndergaard to come back, and you really have a really nice one through five. I would have liked them to sign one more pitcher. They still might. I'd still like a Drizzy, who's available and whose career array is up. Just about what Trevor Bowers is. No, he's never had his elite... 
season as Bauer has, but at the same time, uh, if Adrizzi's only going to cost you like nine, ten million, I'd take that to be your number five starter, and then when Syndergaard comes back, he becomes your swingman. That would be a really nice back of the rotation ad. So, going off of what we know, a lineup, a defensive alignment of McCann behind the plate, Alonzo at first, Jeff McNeil at second, Lindor at short, J.D. Davis at third, Dom Smith in left, Brandon Nimmo in center, and Michael Conforto in right, is an awesome lineup that should drive in and create a lot, a lot of runs, and it's why you'll live with the defensive problems. Lindor, in theory, should be able to mask some of those because he is such a strong defensive player. McNeil is a plus defensive player. Pete is an average to slightly above average defensive first baseman. Davis is just not a good third baseman, but the Mets don't have any alternatives. Unless they were to trade for someone, I know Andy Martino reported like a month ago that they were in, the Mets were talking with the Cubs and in on a potential Chris Bryant trade, but that doesn't seem like it's going to happen at this point. Um, unless the cost were right, I really wouldn't want to pursue Bryant because he's only going to be here for two years and the Mets are better off trying to pursue an asset they could plug in at the hot corner for a number of years. I know I I was not the only one who wanted him, but before Justin Turner ended up signing back with the Dodgers, I would have liked him to be the everyday third baseman and use Davis as a chip and trying to acquire another pitcher or perhaps a center fielder. But again, we're talking about a significantly better team on paper than the Mets fielded last year. you got to remember, they added Trevor May to the bullpen. You're talking about, hopefully, a rejuvenated Edwin Diaz. You're going to have May out there. There is a lot, a lot to like. I know the Mets are working on, at least trying, to dump the salaries of both Juris Familia and Dylan Betances. Don't know how successful they're going to be in the process of doing either of those. Neither of them is a particularly good contract, and I don't know if the Mets are in the position to be using prospects in a salary dump situation because the farm system is so depleted. I would like them to add another pitcher. I would like them to add another reliever. Um, I know Justin Wilson, the lefty the Mets have had the last several years, signed back with the Yankees. He had been there in 2015, I believe. I would have liked Justin Wilson out of the bullpen. He's an above-average reliever. He's a lefty, which is a plus, even though he's better against righties than lefties. The Mets definitely need one more guy for their bullpen, and like I said, Adrizzi would be nice as the extra starter. That way you give yourself a little bit of cushion. That way if you have an injury, because pitching injuries happen. I know in 2019, when the Mets came pretty close to making the playoffs, they had their guys make almost all of their starts, one through five, Wheeler, Matt, Syndergaard, DeGrom, all of them were pretty healthy the entire year and managed to stay in pretty good shape and not miss a lot of starts. And it's part of why the team had so much success that year, even though the bullpen was so bad. If the Mets had a halfway decent bullpen last year or in 2019, probably would have made the playoffs in one of the two years. So you're going to see a better rotation. You're going to hopefully get a full season of Marcus Stroman. You add Carrasco, who's been a mid-three ERA guy most of his career in the, the American League. And 
historically, pitchers going from the American League to the National League do have a little bit easier of a time, just the nature of how National League teams are constructed. And I get that the whole me just telling everyone to relax thing is kind of weird and not the best in terms of what this podcast is about, but we all, us realistic Met fans, wanted to get a pitcher, a catcher, a reliever, and some impact player. We thought the impact player would be Springer or Riomuto. Lindor is better than either of them. Yes, they do need to end up giving him a long-term extension. The same could be said about Conforto. They do need to start thinking about organizing the roster for the next several years. Syndergaard as well will be due for an extension in the not-so-distant future. And pretty quickly you start running out of room. Uh, I assume Steve Cohen will be willing to go over the luxury tax for... If the team is close to winning a World Series, I'm pretty confident he'll be willing to go over... I know the Dodgers, for this upcoming season, because of the contract they gave Trevor Bauer, are approaching $250 million, and the luxury tax is about $210, $212 million, somewhere in that ballpark. And this is like the fifth straight year of the Dodgers going over, so their penalty is more stiff, it's more severe. The Dodgers also won the World Series, and are the betting favorite to win the World Series again this year, and I think Steve Cohen would sign up for that. So I'm not particularly worried about the... Luxury tax going forward. I do think the Mets are going to need a few more things. Third base and center field defensively are both pretty rough. If they could have signed Springer, I think that would have put a lot of more people at ease because of how bad the Mets outfield has been defensively over the last several years. Nimmo is a solid leadoff hitter. He draws a lot of walks, but his glove leaves a lot to be desired. I know I'm not the only one who kind of gasps and holds their breath every time there's a ball hit over his head because he's known to pull up a little early, not really reading the ball particularly well, or being a little bit too aggressive, running full speed, hitting the wall, and taking himself out of the play and giving up a triple inside the park home run, that kind of thing. The Mets haven't put a priority on defense because they need offense because they've had such a hard time with their offense the last several years. I know they had a really hard time with runners in scoring position last year, even though they were amongst the best in the entire league in OPS and slugging. Dom Smith was the league leader in slugging for a while during the 60-game season. They need to work on situational hitting and a little bit less of hitting the ball in the air. I know, I know, I know that is not baseball anymore, but at the same time, they've got a lot of guys who have the style of swing to be good contact hitters. I know Pete Alonso really was pushing himself last year because he had such a bad run. He was really, really pressing to do well. He was popping out a lot. What made Pete good during his rookie season was he was taking what the pitcher was giving him and driving the ball. It didn't matter if he was pulling it, going the other way. He was in control at the plate and just taking what the pitcher gave him, which is so important as a power hitter. If you want to drive the ball, you cannot be trying to pull everything because not every pitch is conducive to being pulled. A pitch inside that you pull is going to be a pop-out to third a lot of the time. Something away from you, same thing. If something is really out far and outside and you try and pull it, you're going to hit a meek pop-up. 
Instead, you got to extend your arms and drive the ball the other way. And when Pete was doing that during his rookie season, he was hitting for a pretty high average. McNeil, we know, is a pretty good average hitter. Jared McCann is not an above average, but he's a solid average hitter, 250-ish, somewhere in that ballpark. I'd like to see a little bit more of that from Conforto, because we know he has the opposite field power to drive the ball. We'd like to see it a little bit more in situational hitting scenarios where he puts the ball in the gap, he's willing to go the other way for power. I'd like to see a little bit more in that regard from him. He's pretty good, Conforto. He's a solid, solid B bit player. He's not elite, but he can hit 30 home runs. He can drive in 100 runs. He can sniff 270. That's a really good guy to have as, like, your third best hitter on a World Series team. In an ideal universe, you're going to have Conforto, Pete, and Dom Smith as your four, three, four, five in some order. That's pretty damn good. Then you go in front of them, you're probably going to have Nimmo batting leadoff because he gets on base so well. You could have Lindor hit second. And then you go Pete, Dom. And then you have a guy like J.D. Davis hitting sixth. James McCann hitting seventh. You, where are you going to put McNeil? You, it, it, you might have McNeil hitting... You could have McNeil hitting second in this lineup. Everyone slides down, and you're looking at like... James McCann hitting, like, 8th, and then if there's no DH, you have your pitcher hitting ninth, and that's a really good batting order. You have a lot of guys who are capable of getting on base, and yes, I know more than once I referred to James McCann as Jared McCann. My brain is on hockey. There is a center who has bounced around a number of teams in the league whose name is Jared McCann. No, I'm not an idiot, but when you've got as much sports information rattling around in your brain as you do. Occasionally you mix up names and James McCann, Jared McCann, pretty close, pretty close. But yeah, that's a really, really good lineup for offense. Uh, I don't know what you're going to get from J.D. Davis. I don't know what you're going to get from McCann. But other than that, you're looking at a solid, solid lineup. You're talking about a shortstop who could threaten to hit 30 home runs in like the three spot? That is impressive. You have a guy like McNeil who could contend for a batting title. You could bat second in front of Lindor, Conforto, Dom Smith, and Pete Alonso. You are in great shape as an offense if that's the kind of options you have for your batting order, righty-lefty, that kind of thing. The bullpen does worry me. The Mets bullpen will always worry me. It's just a staple of the organization. Trevor May is a nice addition. I don't know if he's going to be the closer or if Edwin Diaz is going to be the closer. I assume it will be Edwin Diaz, but I am not positive. They need to get Edwin Diaz's shit sorted out, and he needs to be a good closer for them this year. I'm not expecting Mariano Rivera. I'm not expecting anyone insane. You can't have more than five, six blown saves in the entire season if you're going to make 40, 35, 40 appearances as a closer. You just can't. Uh, Diaz cost them way too many games the last two years, and he was supposed to be a strong point of the team, and it's why the team kept trotting him back out there. Uh, they didn't put him in a position to succeed. He obviously lost confidence in his pitches, and it made his life more difficult. He really had a hard time with the home run ball. He was leaving his slider up. It was hanging. It was coming over the middle of the plate instead of diving into the ground. 
and it was an untenable situation, and they put him in a position to fail, because it was pretty obvious pretty quickly in 2019 that he was not the Edwin Diaz that was in Seattle, and he was having a hard time, but they kept using him in those high-leverage closer situations, and he had a hard time. I know his strikeout numbers are still decent. I do think Edwin Diaz is a salvageable baseball player, but I do know the Mets were trying to trade him last offseason, the 2019 going into 2020 offseason. Brody Van Vatten was actively trying to trade Edwin Diaz. I remember the Jeff Passan report coming out, seeing it on Twitter that, yeah, the Mets are, uh, they're not actively looking for partners, but they're listening on Edwin Diaz, and Passan had reported that uh, no one had any interest because the Mets' asking price was so high because they were trying to save some value from the Robinson Cano trade, because Robbie Cano had been so bad during the 2019 season, and he was supposed to be a marquee addition to the team to help sell tickets. Yeah, Cano had a nice 60-game season, but obviously that was because he was on uh, the juice, and he subsequently failed a steroid test, and it's why he won't be on the team this year, why the Mets were able to recover some salary and spend it a little more liberally this offseason. And that is what I will say. Just remember how bad some of the Mets offseasons the last several years have been. We are not very far removed from the Mets who had an active need in the right field and at third base, not even taking a meeting with Manny Machado or Bryce Harper two years ago. 2019, the Mets had a need at third base, still have a need for a third baseman, and had a need at right field at the time because they had been playing Conforto in center field. And Bryce Harper at the time was coming off of an MVP season with the Nationals. And the Mets didn't even take an interview with either of them because they knew they couldn't afford them. And that kind of thing will not be happening anymore. The Mets will be able to have a sit-down with and offer pretty much any free agent a contract going forward, which is so important to establishing a culture of success. Steve Cohen's going to put the guys on the field in every possible position to succeed, and if he feels like they still need more, he's not going to shy away from spending more money to help the guys on the roster already. We know he was on, he was going to give Bauer $40 million a year, and ultimately Bauer chose to take the Dodgers' money, but... They're going to extend Lindor. They're going to give Conforto an extension. I imagine they're going to extend Syndergaard or Stroman, one of the two, if not both. I imagine they're going to continue being aggressive in free agency and trades if the market is there, because the core for a World Series team is here. They are not that far off from being a team that can compete for a World Series. They need a reliever. They could use a real center fielder who is good at defense that is not just a defensive replacement like Alora or Pilar, but they are not far away. You're talking about a team that has a rookie of the year from a number of years ago, Lindor, who's a certifiable MVP candidate, Dom Smith, who had MVP numbers in the 60-game season, Jeff McNeil, who is a batting title contender, you're talking about McCann, who is a plus hitter at the catcher position with some power. You're talking about Brandon Nimmo, who is, can hover around a 375, 380 on-base percentage as a leadoff hitter or 
your eight hitter if you want to do the inverse, you want to do the second leadoff hitter kind of thing. And then you got like a guy like JD Davis who's just like not a throwaway, but in comparison to everyone else, is kind of just a throwaway. And that's a guy who can hit 25 home runs and drive in 70. The Mets are not that far away from being a legitimate World Series contender. I mean, they have the fourth best betting odds to win the World Series outright right now. It's it's between them, the Padres, the Dodgers, the Yankees, and then the Mets. The Mets are not that far away, and it does hinge on just a few people. It hinges on Edwin Diaz. It hinges on Pete Alonso bouncing back. It hinges on Jacob deGrom continuing to be Jacob deGrom, which I'm not particularly worried about. But I think as he gets older, he will have to kind of tinker with it. His fastball velocity has continued to go up somehow into his early 30s, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. But he has fine-tuned his mechanics to a mastery level where he can just keep getting zip, and he's averaging 98, 99 on his fastball every single one. I cannot believe how quickly Met fans have forgotten what it was like to be the Mets. I know, I know, I know we all wanted Steve Cohen to go crazy to put together an, a Dodgers-esque all-star team. We're getting there. The Mets are not that far away. No, the Mets do not have a Mookie Betts or a Cody Bellinger. They do have a Pete Alonzo and a Francisco Lindor. Neither of those guys is as good as Mookie Betts or Cody Bellinger, but both are more than capable of being MVP candidates. Dom Smith could put his way into that discussion. Jeff McNeil, if he adds a little more power, could be in that discussion. And then you've got DeGrom, who's the best pitcher in baseball. You've got Stroman, who's an above-average, borderline I'd say borderline elite pitcher. He's not elite, but he occasionally can flash some elite traits. He can get people out without having to strike them out. Carrasco is a solid a number three starter in baseball. And then you get Syndergaard back June-ish, hopefully. You're right there with the Dodgers and Padres in terms of talent. And that's where I will leave you guys off for the Tuesday episode. I hope everyone has a good Tuesday. I will talk to you guys tomorrow, and if you are not already, please, please, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the bottom of the episode pages where it's all of the episodes, 1 through 47, all the way to the bottom, click 5 stars, leave a written review, please. If you are on Spotify, please hit the follow button. If you are on SoundCloud, hit the follow button. If you are on Google Play, Audio Boom, Stitcher Radio, hit the follow button. Please follow along on Twitter, at Nick Zararis, Z-A-R-A-R-I-S. We'll have a blog going up on Gotham SN either tomorrow before the Ranger game or on Wednesday after the Ranger game. It depends when I can get an editor to look at it. The blog at Gotham SN, Gotham Sports Network. Lots and lots of hockey content up on the site. That Truba piece was received really well two weeks ago. Really, really poured a lot of heart and soul. That was like three days worth of research put in to writing a 2,000 word article. Really, really good to see the feedback I got on it. It made me feel like my work was appreciated. With all that said, I will see you guys tomorrow. Have a good Tuesday.